Today's scripture reading from the book of the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into my partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from the Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Good to see everybody here. I'm glad you're able to make it today. Um, we are currently starting a new mini-series here, especially in the uh, middle or towards the end of October and then going into November. And there's a reason for this, but I'll share with that later. You would think that um, as you get older, especially as you are supposedly supposed to mature as a Christian, that you would understand something like this, very basic message, uh, something basic to Christianity. You would think that if you've been in the church long enough, if you've been a Christian long enough, that certain concepts and ideas will come easier to you, come easier, and not just in understanding, but also in living out. And this is the idea of what we call, what I want to call, contentment. Contentment. You can use a different word for the word contentment. You can call it satisfaction. You can call it happiness. Let me ask you a question this afternoon. Um, how many of you can genuinely say today that you are satisfied? That you are in some way content? You're content with your life. You're happy. If not, why not? What is it? What is it that you think needs to happen, needs to be attained, needs to be achieved in order for you to be happy, in order for you to be content? If you are content, what is that? Is it your work? Is it your relationship? Is it your job? Is, is it people? What is it? How do you define contentment in your life? What are you looking for? Relationship? Promotion? Money? Respect? You would think that as you get older and become, a, or as, as you grow as a Christian, that the idea of biblical contentment would be an easy thing to understand. Let me tell you something right now. I'm struggling with contentment. I struggle. Oh, yeah, I struggle with contentment all the time. And I'm the pastor. If anyone should know about biblical contentment and what it means to be Christian and happy, it ought to be me. And yet this is one of the things I find myself struggling. Here's what happens to you when you struggle with contentment. You become an unthankful person. You become unthankful. 
you become critical? You become a complainer? You grumble? And you're not an easy person to be with. That's me, many times. If I struggle with this, I'm sure many of you do too. The reason we're going over this in the next couple of weeks is guess what? November is around the corner. And what's in November every year? Thanksgiving. How are you going to be a thankful person if you're always discontent and disgruntled? It's very difficult. And we'll get to that next month. But we want to understand here, I think, some biblical principles. And this is something that I'm preaching not just to you, but I'm preaching to myself. What we see here in Philippians chapter 4, just as an introduction, three points. Number one, God wants you to be content. He wants you to be happy, okay? Number two, God wants you to learn contentment. He doesn't just want you to be content. He doesn't just want you to be satisfied. He wants you also to learn. And number three, the last point, not only does God want you to be content, not only does he want you to learn contentment, but also he is the God who gives contentment. He provides. Okay? So those three basic points from this passage today, and that's what we're going to look at. First, God wants you to be content. Did you know that? Your life might not be going as well as you would like to right now. You might be struggling with a few things. It could be with your children. It could be with your work. It could be with your spouse. It could be with church. You might not be happy today. And you're praying. And maybe you are praying. And maybe you're asking God to provide, to give you whatever you think it is that will make things in your life a little bit better. But it's not coming, is it? And so you're discontent. And you might be thinking, well, maybe God does not answer those prayers. And maybe he doesn't want me to be happy. Because if he did, why wouldn't he answer these prayers? But I want you to understand something. What Paul is telling us here in Philippians 4, he wants you to be content. Contentment here in the Bible isn't just a word in the dictionary that we all know. It's a biblical word as well. And whether you know it or not, the Bible has a lot to say about being happy and content. So for example, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world. We can't take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, and these will be, we will be content. Hebrews chapter 13, be content with whatever you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or think of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Living in a less than ideal situation, Paul says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content. Contentment, satisfaction, happiness, however you want to describe it, is a big deal for the Bible and it's a big deal for Paul. And in our passage, I think it's of particular emphasis because in verse 11, this is what Paul says. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, I am to be content. Paul here is commanding the Philippians to be content, and he's commending to the Philippians his own state of contentment. Now, before we continue this passage, some of you might be thinking, but that's the Apostle Paul. He's a super Christian. He's super spiritual, and so what he's going to be describing is only for a particular, mature, super spiritual Christian. But that's not what he's going to say, right? He wants the Philippian church to understand how important it is, how significant it is, how much it's needed, and how much he wants you to have it. 
God wants you to be content. God's will for his people, for you, is to live, not later, not when you get what you think you need to be happy, not when you get to heaven, but right now, in this circumstance, in this situation, he wants you to live in a state of contentment, satisfaction, joy. And this might be a little surprising to some of us because maybe some of you, your idea of what you think a good Christian is, is someone who's always struggling but faithful. Uh, maybe you had an idea that living as a Christian meant that, 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 like the Apostle Paul did, you've got to suffer, and you're not really suffering, and so maybe you feel like, you know, that, that there's a difference in, in the Christian life there. And yes, Paul, he did suffer, but his suffering was never just for the sake of suffering, and Paul wants to be content. Paul wants to be happy. He doesn't want to just suffer for sake of suffering. So he tells us, and the Bible tells us, so does God. That's a little different from some of the thoughts in the world today. For example, in Islam, your contentment is not important. What matters more is Allah's content with you and what you do and how you live. This is different from many of the Eastern religions that say contentment or personal satisfaction in this world is an illusion. There's no such thing in this world. So stop trying to pursue that. And the more you free yourself from that illusion, then you will find real enlightenment. But Paul is the very opposite. It's very clear. Your personal contentment is important. And he wants you to be content. No, even more. He doesn't just want you to be. He commands you. Commands you to be content. To be satisfied. But let me just qualify that statement here, okay? I know you may know where I'm going with this. But one more dimension. Because the idea of contentment, we all have an idea what that might look like for us, okay? It's a familiar concept. But it's also different. It's familiar, but it's also different when you look at the Bible. Paul's contentment just goes a little bit deeper. Because look at what he says in verse 11. Let's be very clear about this verse. He's saying, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. Whatever situation I'm to be satisfied and happy. Where or when should I be content? How do I be content? where in whatever situation I'm to be content. That's a little different now, isn't it? And we can all agree that people want to be content, or even that God wants us to be happy. But ask yourself this question. Can I say, in whatever situation, whatever state I am in, that I'm content? Can I say that I'm content no matter what my situation is? No matter how my relationships are going? no matter how the work is hard or difficult or rough, that I am perfectly at peace and satisfied, that I can say I have enough? Because I'll be honest, and I think if you are, you agree with me, my contentment, my happiness, is based on my situation. It's based on my circumstance. And if my situation is good, then of course I'm happy. Of course I'm content. 
But if it's not so great, or worse, if it's just horrible, of course then I'm going to be discontent. I'm going to be unhappy. How is it then that Paul can say, I can be content in any situation? And so immediately we realize that this command to be content, it's, it's one of those radical, seemingly impossible commands. Just like the command Paul gave earlier in this chapter when he says in verse 4, I want you to rejoice, and I want you to rejoice always. And we've got to ask the question, how does someone rejoice always? I mean, all the time, right? Especially if you're a, more of a pessimist, a cynical kind of person, he says rejoice always. And in a similar fashion, then, be content. Paul is saying, be content always. And we've got to ask the question, how do you do that? How is it possible that God could command such a thing? In a life, in a world of ups and downs, where sometimes we feel like there's more downs than ups, how do we do this? And part of the problem, at least for me, is how we define contentment. It's familiar we all have an idea of what it means, but at the same time, the Bible's definition is a little different. Part of the issue is this. When you think about words like joy and love and even contentment and satisfaction, we tend to think in terms of feelings. I feel joy. I feel love. I feel content. But feelings are spontaneous emotions, aren't they? Feelings can't be controlled. They just sort of happen in response to something else. They are a sign, a response to something deeper. So you can't control feelings. And then if you can't control it, how do you command it? I want you to be happy. I want you to be joyous. But I can't control a feeling. I mean, how do I make myself feel this way? So the commands we hear about rejoice always or be content always, that's why it seems impossible for many of us. But that's not how I think Paul sees it. That's not how I think God sees it, because God didn't make people a bundle of uncontrolled emotions and feelings. He made people thinking and willing as well as feeling. And his original purpose was that people were supposed to begin by thinking. And that thinking would transform into a willing. And if we understand what is good, that our wills might commit to doing and then, what ought to follow is that the feelings would follow after that because of what we think and what we will. Ideally. God's intended purpose was that our feelings and emotions are to be guided by our thinking and willing. But unfortunately, things in our world have been reversed because in our culture, oftentimes, our thinking and willing are dominated by our feelings. Feelings have become the priority now. If I feel like doing it, then I'll do it. If I don't feel like it, then I won't. If I feel this way about this person or this circumstance, that's facts. It must be true. But that's not a definition of, I think, what God means when he says to rejoice or to, be, to love or, or even to be content. You've got to feel it. That's, I don't think that's what he's talking about. Look carefully again at verse 11. Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, I feel happy in whatever situation that I'm in. What does it say? 
He says this, I have learned, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. For the Apostle Paul, listen carefully, happiness, contentment, satisfaction is not first felt, it's learned. It's something to learn. God wants you to be content. But the second point is this. He wants you to learn this contentment. It's not something we just feel automatically because of a response to something outside of us. It's something that needs to be learned. Here's Paul. He says he strives to be a contented man. And if we look closely today, as we will in the following weeks, Paul shares his contentment, and we learn that the first strand of his contentment is finding our, in his understanding of contentment, we find ours as well. Okay? Here it is. Listen to, listen to verse 10. He says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. All right, this is very practical for us, okay, because I think many of us have gone through this, especially in our friendships and our relationships and so on and so forth. Let me tell you what's going on here. The book of Philippians is a letter, okay? It's a thank you letter written by the Apostle Paul as he was in prison in Rome. I don't think he knew this. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I'm certainly people didn't know. He would never get out of jail in Rome. He would end up dying there. So he was thanking the people in this church of Philippi for sending their support and their gifts to him while he was in prison through a messenger named Epaphroditus. So here's Paul in prison, and all of a sudden, this guy named Epaphroditus comes over. He's a messenger from this church who's giving him stuff. Clothes, food, water, who knows? A letter. So this guy, Epaphroditus, travels from Philippi to visit Paul, a representative of his church, and visits Paul in prison to drop off a gift and a message from this church. This church in Philippi, the Philippian church, it was especially dear to Paul. He had, or he believed he had a tight relationship because it was the first church he founded in Europe. It's where he met Lydia, his first convert. And so this church was a sending church. They were supporting church, uh, a church, a supporting church for the Apostle Paul. It was a church that loved Paul, and it was, a Paul, it was a church that Paul dearly loved. But what's interesting in our passage is this. In verse 10, he says there in verse 10, he's thankful and rejoices because their concern for him, even as he was in prison, has now been revived. Now he's talking about the gift and, and news of support he just got from the messenger Epaphroditus, but he says it was a sign that their concern for him was renewed, revived. Do you know what that means? It means this. For whatever reason, and we don't know, there was no news from them for a long time. Paul's in prison. He's got a relationship with this church. And there has been no news, no support, no gift, no sign of concern from the church that he loved for some time. In fact, some scholars say it's probably been about 10 years, 10 years since the last message or gift or anything was sent to him from this church in Philippi. 10 years and no news, no communication, and he's in prison. 
Ten years since he last heard from them. Ten whole years since his last or since their last expression of concern and love for Paul. Paul was the founder of their church. They had a bond of love, but for 10 years, there had been no news, no support, and now he's in prison. Let me ask you a question. How would you feel? Maybe not with church, and you're not in prison, but how would you feel that those who you considered close to you, a friend, knowing that you're going through something hard, something difficult, and says nothing for 10 years? How would you feel? So he finally gets some news. He finally gets some support through Epaphroditus, maybe after 10 whole years, and he writes this letter back to them. Now, let me be very honest. If I were Apostle Paul writing this letter, my sinful side would just take over, okay? I would write something like this, to whom it may concern. Now I know where we stand. I haven't heard from you for over 10 years. Are you serious? Ten years to hear from you? Do you know what I've been going through? And this is it? With friends and supporters like you, who needs enemies? I don't know what your problem is, but I'd say, I'd like to say I hope to hear things are well, but I probably won't be around the next time I hear from you anyway. So good luck. Have a nice life. Sincerely disappointed, Apostle Paul. All right? Come on, let's be honest. You know you do the same. You do it all the time with friends and people around you that have failed you. You do it all the time. But that's not what Apostle Paul does. Right? This is, and, and, we, and this is the key thing here. How, how does this make a difference for Paul? He doesn't do that. He writes this letter. What does he say? He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because now finally you've revived your concern for me. You were concerned, he says. You just had no opportunity. You see how smooth he is? He rejoices for their concern. And get this. He says, you really are concerned for me. You really do care. And I know you didn't get back to me for 10 years because you just had no opportunity. He's saying in this letter, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I knew it. I knew you were always concerned for me. I knew you were always praying for me. I knew it just took a while because... You just didn't have the opportunity to do it till now. Paul is smooth. But it almost sounds like he's just being nice. You just didn't have the right time to do it until now. The word opportunity is not chronological. He's not saying you didn't have time to do it. It literally means a season. And he's saying you just never had that moment to get back to me, and that happens. Now, I don't know if Paul knew what took so long. I doubt he did. We don't really know, but we don't, and we don't know why it took them so long to get to him. We don't know if it was because maybe the church was poor and struggling, or whether the church didn't know what Paul's needs were, or whether they just took a long time to find out where Paul was. But for whatever reason, they didn't do anything for 10 years, and Paul then probably had to live without probably had to grind it out day by day without help. He just says, well, you just didn't have the opportunity to help me. I don't hold it against you. I'm thankful. I understand. You just had no opportunity to do something till recently. And I rejoice greatly. 
I know you're concerned. You just didn't have the right moment to show it. Now here's the question. How could he respond this way? Was he just being polite? Was he just being nice? Was he just being sort of PC or political? And here's the point. Paul was able to respond this way to this church, even though they hadn't talked to him for over 10 years, possibly. He was able to respond this way genuinely, not politically, not just to be polite, not just uh, to, you know, to be nice, but genuinely respond this way because his confidence was not in those people. Because his confidence was not in his circumstance. Paul's confidence, his patient confidence, was in God's sovereign providence. He believed in the providence of God. He believed that ultimately it was all in God's hands. He believed that it's God who gives the right season, the right time, and provides the right opportunities when things would bear fruit. So there was in his mind no need for panic in his heart. There was no need to try and manipulate people to get what he wanted. There was no twisting of their arms and turning the screws to get what he thought he needed out of anyone. Why? Because he was certain that God in due time would provide the opportunity, provide what he needed so that his needs would be met. He didn't feel the need to rebuke this church, to resolve any kind of conflict. But he believed the responsibility is the Lord's, and he waited patiently until God would make it happen. Now, what does this all have to do with contentment? And it's this. The reason this man can be content or happy or satisfied in whatever situation It's because he believed and he trusted that the times and the seasons and the opportunities of life were under the control of God that he trusted. It's not under his control. It's not in the control of others, but it's ultimately in his. And until we learn that, until we trust in this, until we hope in this, we will never be content. Until we come to a place in life where you understand and you trust that ultimately God is the one who is working things for his purposes. That ultimately God is the one, according to his goodwill, making all things work for those who love him. Until we understand this, as Christians, we will always be discontent. Because we will always try and take on that responsibility to organize and order our lives and we will be frustrated because there will always be something we miss, something we could have done more, something we could have done better, and we just can't seem to control every single detail. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying just trust in God and don't do anything. That's not what Paul is talking about. You do everything that God has given to you. You use everything and every means that God has provided you. But at the end of the day, God is going to use all of that, and he's going to make what he sees best come to fruition. Whether it's the fruit of your work or the fruit of his plan, he's the one who provides ultimately. Discontent comes when we want something and we try to make it happen 
but it doesn't. And many times it will frustrate us because of a failure to understand that, for one, you and I don't control that much as we think. And second, everything is already under the control of someone who is better at running your life. You might disagree with that statement, but that's what God says. Paul has an amazing contentment in those 10 years because it's built on the idea that there just wasn't an opportunity given, and it wasn't given to this church because he trusts that God hadn't given it until now, and so he was able to remain calm. Do you see this? Do you see how content, you know, God doesn't just want you to be happy just so you could be happy, but when you're happy in Christ, when you're content in Christ, it makes a difference in your relationships. It makes a difference how you treat others. It makes a difference in how you interpret your situation. You're not judging all the time because you've been let down. You're not hating or cutting people off just because you feel disappointed by them. It makes a difference being content. And that's why it's the third point here. God wants you to be content, but he's something he's got to learn. And it's something that God provides. We call that divine providence. Part of providence comes from the word provide. It means God who provides. Paul trusted in God's providence. Now, let me just briefly talk about this, and we'll finish soon. But two ways that God could act in the world. One is by miracle. The other is what we call providence. Now, what's a miracle? It's when you realize that there's a natural course of things, a natural flow of life, and then God injects an event that flows against that natural flow. There's no natural explanation. That's a miracle. But providence, the other way that God works in the world, is when he takes all the different elements of the normal, the mundane, and then he orchestrates them in a way to accomplish a purpose. Now let me ask you a question. Which way do you think is more difficult? Do a miracle or by providence? I think it's providence. Because I think for God, it must be pretty easy just to snap his fingers and say, let it be done. That's a miracle but it might take a little more work to orchestrate like 50 billion circumstances to accomplish one thing. That's providence. Now, some of us here, maybe you pray for miracles. Maybe you believe in miracles. But do you believe in providence? Because when you come to understand that God is not only sovereign over supernatural things, but even also over the natural you can have confidence and contentment. It's possible in the everyday mundane. Why? Because a contented person is someone who knows that God is working in the everyday for his purpose and for your good. Not just in the miracle, but in the everyday. In the Bible, you read about miracles, about people being healed, about people rising from the dead and walking on the water. But read the story of Joseph. Look how his life worked out. Read the story of Esther and Ruth, right? You see, the Bible's full of illustrations where we don't necessarily see a, a, a supernatural miracle, but how the life of people seems to work out in the way that God had intended, through the ordinary things. Paul was confident that God was in charge. And since he was, everything in the end, he trusted and had to trust, it's going to be fine. This is where contentment starts. And you will begin to experience a contented heart when you begin to understand that there is a God who is working 
in our lives, in this world, for our good and for his glory. You work and you do as much as you can, as much as you have to. But you're contented because in the end, the results are going to be in his hands and not yours. And you believe he cares for you. So if you're a discontented Christian today, the problem just isn't because, well, my life is a little more difficult and I'm, I'm a little less fulfilled and, uh, you know, I'm not getting what I think I need. The problem at its core, if you're a discontent Christian, the problem is faith. We struggle, I struggle to really know, to really trust that there really is a God who is working in my everyday circumstances even now. And at this point, some of you might be asking, well, how do I know? How do I know I can trust that God is doing anything? How do I know that he's going to provide what's best for me in my present circumstances for my good? How do I know? How would I trust that? And the answer to that is, God's already given you the greatest proof of his trustworthy when he gave you his son, Jesus Christ. Think about this. It was divine providence that God sent his son to give us life. It was divine providence that he happened to be born in a manger as a baby and not some miraculous super angel in a castle. It was divine providence that he orchestrated Jesus' life over 30-some years according to his purpose. It was divine providence that he would be betrayed by those who were closest to him. Divine providence that his own people would turn against him. It was divine providence that he ends up crucified like a thief and he dies on a cross for us. At any moment, Jesus probably could have snapped his finger, said, miracle, no more enemies. But who killed Jesus? It's not the Jews out of jealousy. It's not the Romans out of fear. It was his father. It was God for love. Divine, providential love. You have every reason to trust in God's providence for you today because he's given you his greatest proof of trustworthiness already. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not give us all things graciously? And that includes, that results in a biblical, godly, Christian contentment. And that contentment, if you tap into it, close your eyes to the circle. You know, there's a reason why we close our eyes when we pray. So I don't look at what's in front of my face. Close my eyes to what's in front of me. Close my eyes to the circumstance right now and focus on God a little bit more. Remind myself of these truths. This is what God is doing. I need to trust in this. Help me to trust in this. And it makes a difference in your life. Contentment leads to gratitude. You become a thankful person. And that's what we need to look at next month. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your words. We thank you for all the things that we already have, but Sometimes it feels like not enough and focusing on things that we don't have and what we think we need. And 
um, we can easily forget and easily become a discontented people, a grumbling people, much like the Israelites in the wilderness. We and our faith and trust in you is easily shaken. And we need constant reminders of your faithfulness. We pray, Lord, that you and only you can increase the faith in our hearts. We are thankful for your grace, grace which is undeserved, unmerited favor to us. You know how fickle people are. You know how unstable we can be. We follow to and fro the waves of our circumstances which wash here and there and we just are swept away. Be the anchor that you are meant to be in our lives. Redirect our gaze from our hearts and our desires, circumstances and situation in our lives and help us to make time to focus on you and what we say we believe. Help us to trust that you are still the God who is a God of providence. You have given to us all that you already have. And so, Lord, whatever it is that we're going through and whatever circumstance is causing us a disgruntlement, whatever it is, Father, we pray that you will lift our eyes to you and teach us what it means to rejoice always and in whatever circumstance to be content. Make that more and more reality in our lives as we strive and live and do the best we've been given with in the life we have now. We are not overrun by our failures. We are not defeated when we cannot achieve what we initially wanted. We are encouraged to continue to strive for what's best. And we are never satisfied with status quo because in this world, the only satisfaction we might find is in you. And so, Lord, give us the strength to persevere, to serve, to work, to trust and believe, knowing that you're a God who makes all things possible and gives us the right season, the right moments, and the right opportunities to experience your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.